From the PA Foundation, I'm James Millward, and this is Vital Minds, a podcast connecting the most vital issues in clinical care with the top minds facing them every day. The pace of population aging is much faster currently than in the past. Between 2015 and 2050, the proportion of the world's population over 60 years will double from 12% to 22%. Historical gains in life expectancy are thanks in part to advances in medicine and public health and improvements in many social determinants of health. The World Health Organization defines social determinants of health as the conditions in which people were born, grow, live, work, and age, shaped by the distribution of money, power, and resources at global, national, and local levels. But these resources have not been evenly distributed. Deeply rooted health inequities exist among subpopulations of older adults. Today, we have two great vital minds here with us to discuss health equity in aging populations. Dr. Leanne Clark-Shirley, Vice President of Programs and Thought Leadership at the American Society of Aging, and PA Nathan Hart, APP Director of Hospital Medicine at Cleveland Clinic. Leanne and Nathan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us. Now, before we discuss the topics at hand, I'm always interested. Tell us a little bit about how you got into your respective fields. Sure, I can start. Um, So I started my PA practice uh, in uh, 2012. The majority of my career has been spent in hospital medicine, and I had the opportunity uh, in 2018 to step into a leadership role as the director of our hospital medicine, our medical care at home, and our wellness groups here at the Cleveland Clinic and ultimately uh, got to begin working uh, with our home-based geriatric program and home-based primary care programs. Uh, And it really showed uh, the support that is required to keep patients in their homes. And that's ultimately where they feel most comfortable receiving their care. And by doing so, I was able to see really the impact of cognitive change and the social determinants of health and health inequities and how it affects our aging population. So, the work we've done at the Cleveland Clinic uh, and with our Davos Collaborative, which we'll talk about, uh, I'm sure, through this podcast, is really uh, has been the main driver to, to my uh, interest in the field. I am a very proud gerontologist. I have three degrees in gerontology, and the way that I got into the field was simply by taking a class um, in my undergrad program at Miami University. They had something called Gerontology 101. And I thought, how in the heck could you spend an entire semester talking about aging? But I took the class, and 20 years later, here I am still talking and learning new things about aging every day. Um, And I'm just really glad to be here. In my present role um, at the American Society on Aging, we unite, empower, and champion everyone working in aging. And it's my personal mission to help every one of us see the role that we have in our aging society. Thank you. I always love hearing the passion that people have um, behind the specialties that they, you know, decide to really hone in on and, and develop that expertise. It's great to hear. Now, Leanne, tell us a little bit more about the social determinants of health and how that affects how a person ages. Well, James, as you mentioned, social determinants of health are the characteristics that are present in the places that we live, the places we work, and where we're aging. And these characteristics have an impact on our health, on our quality of life, and even the risk factors that we might face. Some examples of social determinants of health, um, having things like safe housing, access to transportation, experiencing racism, um, experiencing violence, um, having job opportunities, even experiencing polluted air and water. 
these things over time, as we live and age every day, whatever we're facing in our environments like that, accumulate over time. And so they really shape the way that we are able to age and they shape who we are and what we're like and what we need when we arrive in old age. I think it's so interesting that the multifactorial aspect of that, there are so many different pieces that go mm-hmm. into, you know, the ultimate effect of how, how well we age over time. Yeah, social determinants of health also impact our risk factor for dementia, which I know that we'll be talking about later. Definitely. And Nathan, um, as a clinician, how do these health equity issues impact your encounters with older patients? Is there anything that can be done on the level of individual providers or clinics when we're helping these patients? I think one of the things as a clinician, we don't want to assume anything. To Leanne's point, we don't want to assume that they have financial uh, stability or uh, they may have food insecurities, transportation problems, mobility problems. So really keeping an open communication uh, with the patient and don't be uh, afraid to ask as the clinician. Uh, We need to understand uh, the differences in aging across diverse populations and how those social determinants ultimately, in fact, uh, increase the risk of disease or disability. And one of the things that we try to aim to do uh, in each visit is really address those health equity questions at each and every visit uh, by asking the patient those questions. And I can't help but to also add in making sure that we are leveraging our health partnerships and our community partnerships. As clinicians, uh, we need to know what resources are available, uh, not only within our own health system or practice area, but what's also available for community resources that the, and how the patient can access them. So it's ultimately building those long-term relationships, not only with the patient, but with our community that serves them. Thank you. That's a great point. Now, as we mentioned, poor overall health is also a risk factor for Alzheimer's and other dementias. More than 5 million Americans 65 years or older are estimated to have dementia, and the number is expected to grow to 13.9 million by 2060. Alzheimer's disease, the sixth leading cause of death in the United States, accounts for approximately 60 to 80 percent of all cases of dementia. And suboptimal detection and diagnosis of dementia reduce the ability of people with dementia and their families to make informed decisions, access appropriate medical care, create financial and legal plans, and pursue services and support. Nathan, you do a lot of work in this area. Uh, What can you tell us about some of the modifiable risk factors for dementia? Really, I think modifiable risk factors are really the hot topic when it comes to uh, Alzheimer's disease and uh, related dementias. And ultimately, we want to encourage our patients to maintain a healthy lifestyle and help manage their chronic medical conditions because we know that if the patient has overall good physical health, this facilitates and improves their brain health and may ultimately decrease the risk of dementia or its progression. When we look uh, at modifiable risk factors, uh, the, the list can go on and on. But if we look at two common disease processes like hypertension and diabetes, we know that hypertension you know, promotes atherosclerotic changes in the cerebrovascular system, and that ultimately uh, leads to cerebrovascular disease, and which can affect and increase the risk of dementia. And it's been shown that patients with type 2 diabetes have a 60% greater risk for the development of dementia compared to those without. Uh, and then the CDC actually came out with a, a study in 2002 uh, looking at eight uh, common risk factors for the development uh, of dementia. And this included hypertension, uh, physical exercise, obesity, diabetes, 
depression, smoking and drinking, and hearing loss. And it's a really great study. There was 140,000 people uh, that was surveyed. Nearly 50% of those people surveyed had high blood pressure, and 50% did not meet their aerobic physical activity guidelines. 35% were obese, and 11.5% did not have a primary care provider. So when we look at modifiable risk factors like I listed, we need to look not only at uh, the risk factors themselves, but actual uh, races and ethnicities, because we know that there's a higher prevalence in African-Americans, Hispanics, and Alaskan Natives, uh, and American Indians. So we need to really focus uh, as we move forward in the future uh, with modifying these risk factors and promoting a healthy lifestyle for our patients. I think the thing that impressed me when you're reviewing that list too is uh, so many of these are primary care preventative type medicine issues that, you know, if we get people involved in healthcare and, you know, consistently seeing a primary care provider, these are things that should have been addressed years in the past. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's, you know, when when I saw that 11.5% uh, didn't have a primary care provider in this sample size, it just shows the importance of making sure patients are being seen by primary care and managing those chronic conditions. So I couldn't agree more. Now, the term dementia can be very difficult for some people and certainly carries a bit of a stigma. So let's dig into that a little bit. We know a longer life brings with it opportunities, not only for older people and their families, but also for societies as a whole. Additional years provide the chance to pursue new activities such as further education, a new career, or long-neglected passions. Older people also contribute in many ways to their families and communities, yet the extent of these opportunities and contributions is dependent heavily on one factor, health. And older people are often assumed to be frail or dependent and a burden to society. Leanne, how do ageism and stigma affect how a person ages and their health? Well, this is something that we talk about often at the American Society on Aging. Um, We have a very simplistic view in our society that aging equals decline. Um, And like you mentioned, that's not necessarily the case. Um, Aging can mean some types of decline for people, but it doesn't happen uniformly. Um, And as we just talked about, um, it happens disproportionately to people of color and people experiencing lifetimes of lower incomes, people living in areas where there are not healthcare providers readily available. So this is, so we talk about aging and, and the term that I like least is actually the elderly because the elderly, when we say that, it implies that there's some singular, similar, knowable group that we just lump everyone 65 and older into. And that's just not the case. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and this is harmful. I think it's, it's very, we, we know research bears out that it's harmful uh, to lump everyone in this group and to and to assume that everyone 65 and older um, is experiencing nothing but a time of decline. And I, I wanted to talk about um, a couple different studies that demonstrate this harm. First, we know from research that um, older people that have negative views about their own aging, they don't recover as well um, when they encounter injuries or disability. And they actually live almost eight years less than people with positive attitudes. And to me, this just demonstrates, you know, we talk a lot about longevity and the longevity economy and the longevity revolution. Longevity is not equally available to all of us, but aging is. We are all aging. And so when 
we focus on longevity and stigmatize aging, I think we really do a lot of harm through that process. We internalize negative beliefs about ourselves. We're treated differently. And the second study I want to talk about quickly really illustrates the harms of that. This is a study by Becca Levy and colleagues. It came out in 2020. And they concluded, this is astonishing. It's still, I've, I've repeated this study several times and it still blows my mind. The authors concluded that in one single year, $63 billion, $63 billion were spent by Medicare on the top eight health conditions that older people face because of ageism. <laughs> they found one out of every $7 spent on healthcare for those conditions was directly attributable to ageism. In other words, if ageism didn't exist, those $63 billion of healthcare costs could have been avoided. And that was just one year. It's pretty astonishing. And the way that that happens, uh, the authors found three main mechanisms for how this happens. And it happens in healthcare encounters. First is age discrimination. And that's when someone experiences detrimental treatment as an older person. Um, they're treated with less respect, maybe called names, even insulted. And, and importantly, and I think this happens too often, viewed and treated as unintelligent or un, not capable of understanding what's going on in a medical encounter. And this is particularly true for people with dementia. Age discrimination, that's one. Second is ne negative age stereotypes. These are beliefs about older people that we all internalize and that we all express when we interact with older people. This is things like, uh, these are things like, it's normal to be depressed when you're old. It's normal to be in pain. There's nothing to be done about it. Well, you're just getting older. It's impossible to escape mental slowness or, oh, you're old. You must be a little bit demented. These negative age stereotypes become internalized. And when that happens, we move into the third pathway, which is negative perceptions of aging. This is what happens when we internalize negative age stereotypes, when we internalize the age discrimination, and we then in turn have negative beliefs about our own lives when we are older, about our own aging. This is things like, well, the older I get, the more useless I am, um, or things keep getting worse the older I get, and that's just normal. And all of these things compile together um, and make people less likely to seek out treatment for pain or to seek treatment for depression or substance use. They just assume that they have to live with this because they're getting older. And clinicians too often miss or undi undiagnose these conditions in people. So you can see how this attributes over the course of one's life to either ignoring conditions, not seeking treatment, or getting treatment that isn't sufficient. And that leads to $63 billion of Medicare spending. It still blows my mind. That is a wild statistic there. And that it's, you know, it's actually really interesting to hear that, the information, their interpretation of that, that a lot of this is actually propagated by healthcare providers, by not, you know, treating patients with the proper empathy and actually addressing their whole health. Um, mm -hmm. Nathan, how, how does this show up for you in clinical practice? What uh, does dementia-specific stigma kind of look like, and how is it impacting patient care? Yeah, James, I, I think ultimately uh, when, when we talk about stigma, there is also an innate fear from patients, especially those that are experiencing a cognitive change, about seeking that diagnosis. Uh, and they may even hide it from friends and family uh, because they don't want to be stereotyped or, or placed into that stigma. 
And like Leanne said, there's a lot of things that result from that uh, negative stigma. Uh, you know, patients will, pre- uh, you know, prevent, uh, they won't seek medical care when they do have symptoms. They won't receive an early diagnosis. And we know that the sooner the diagnosis, the sooner we can work uh, on mod- those modifiable risk factors and treatments. They also, uh, with the diagnosis, you need a support system. Um, so if they're waiting uh, to, to seek the diagnosis or, or, or get the diagnosis, they really don't have that time to develop the, uh, the support system, which can ultimately decrease their quality of life over time. And there's a lot of work being done uh, with clinical trials across the country, across the world. And having an early diagnosis and not having the stigma behind uh, the diagnosis of a, a dementia uh, or Alzheimer's disease really allows patients to uh, be advocates for themselves and go and seek potentially clinical trials. We also have to look at, at the, the caregivers and the family and the effect of the stigma on, uh, on, those, on those caregivers. Uh, they ultimately, uh, the, wait, the longer they wait to, to get the diagnosis, it ultimately has difficulty getting appropriate support services, being excluded from participating in treatment and care decisions. You know, the patient is hiding the diagnosis and not discussing with it. How can the family support them through this? Uh, And there's often uh, the sense that the patient, when they receive a diagnosis, uh, will have social rejection or avoidance, uh, or they're going to be ignored, like Leanne mentioned. And as healthcare providers, I think we uh, also have to change our viewpoint on the diagnosis. Uh, we want to intervene early, uh, but we often feel helpless at times because uh, we don't want the patient to have to come in with a preconceived notion that there's nothing that we can do for them. Uh, and th- those those thought processes can be really harmful and really delay you know diagnosis and, and treatment for the disease. So ultimately. Uh, ensuring that we're communicating appropriately with our patients and really focusing on uh, breaking down that stigma is, is important in the primary care setting. Thank you. Those are very good points. And, you know, so to continue on the, on the thought of communication with our patients, how can healthcare providers talk to patients about some of these, you know, very sensitive topics in a way that opens lines of communication and doesn't come off as condescending or in a, in a negative connotation? I think, Nathan, you know, you started off this conversation by by saying assume nothing and always ask and and I think that is so important too to this conversation about ageism and stigma and dementia um, too often I think and 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 I don't you know this is not just healthcare providers we are we are all in our American society members of an ageist society and so this is a struggle that that we all have but healthcare providers in general you know I think in specific. When you encounter an older patient and maybe they have a younger person with them in the room, there's a tendency to to shift and talk to that younger person. Try to change that. Try to talk, you know, talk to the older patient, even and especially with dementia, because we need to gauge ability and capability before we make assumptions about it. And I think there's a way to shift language to avoid othering or avoid talking down to or avoid patronizing older patients. One of the a simple thing to do that goes a long way is just stop using patronizing terms like young man or nice to see you today, young man, when you're talking to someone who's 95. They know they're 95. You know they're 95. There's nothing wrong with being 95. Um, but when we, when we use terms like that that talk down to or patronize people, that just reinforces this feeling that, that we're just a little bit less competent than we might otherwise be. We know, like I mentioned, pain and depression 
substance abuse, things like that are way underdiagnosed. And so I would just encourage everyone to, um, you know, ask questions about these instead of making assumptions um, that someone is is or isn't experiencing a condition, um, is or isn't experiencing memory loss, ask questions, avoid making those assumptions. Yeah, I can't agree more, uh, Leanne. I think one of the things that I always teach uh, our new providers that come in and, uh, and students that I have is you always want to talk directly to the patient rather than the caregiver or the family member. You want to engage them uh, and, and have that open and honest communication with them. From in our standpoint, in, our, in my clinical practice, we try to make uh, the discussion about brain health something that happens on a yearly basis, right? We want to make sure and set the expectation that uh, when we're performing uh, screening examinations for cognition, that this is going to happen every year. We, we want to make it seem uh, like we're checking your blood pressure and your pulse for your cardiovascular health. By performing uh, cognitive screening tools, we want to uh, see how your, your, your brain health is. And really setting that expectation that each and uh, every year that we're going to be talking it, uh, talking about it, it really sets a conversation over time and hopefully allows the patient to feel comfortable bringing any concerns to us. But from a clinician standpoint, when we get to communicating a diagnosis, I think the clinician, we, as a clinician, we have to feel comfortable in explaining the diagnosis. We have to be open and honest with the patient about the potential for future impact uh, treatment options and where they can find support. So it, even at times we, uh, and I have brought patients back, you know, within a week or so after they received a diagnosis so that we can really uh, discuss further about some of those topics. Thank you. And, you know, I see even in, in my practice, I'm in cardiac surgery and many of our patients are over 65 and definitely seeing the tendency of providers to address the family instead of addressing the patient when we are talking. And it is so much more impactful to focus on the patient and include the family. But the patient is, is the key, is, is the prime person that we're, we're there to take care of. And I think giving that attention is noticed by patients. And I think it helps them realize we actually do care about them. Now, Nathan, what are some ways your team at the Cleveland Clinic approaches these issues with a health equity lens? We have partnered uh, with the AAPA and the PA Foundation on our Davis uh, Alzheimer Collaborator Project, which uh, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, as we go through the podcast. But ultimately, what one of the things that we brought up is creating a new visit type for providers with more billable time to have these conversations, focusing on having that face-to-face evaluation. Uh, we really are, you know, because of COVID, pivoted to a lot of virtual um, medicine, but you know, we we have we can't discount that face-to-face evaluation where we perform the cognitive assessment. We really look at their functional assessment, medication reconciliation, um, polypharmacy, and really have the ability and the time. Uh, these conversations on cognition tend to be uh, built into uh, routine checkups uh, where we're adjusting blood pressure medications or diabetes medications, but. I think it's important that we that we set aside specific time for these patients that have cognitive concerns. Uh, also, at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, we have a wonderful wellness institute, uh, and they have a brain health shared medical appointment where it brings together patients uh, that have cognitive uh, impairment or a dementia diagnosis into a group setting, and it focuses on how uh, we can work with those modifiable risk factors 
and it built this, uh, an army uh, with the patients. It, it, it brings them together so they can talk about things such as nutrition, physical activity, sleep hygiene, mental activity, and, and relaxation. So ultimately, what we aim to do is bring an interdisciplinary uh, team together to support the patients on their journey um, uh, through the Cleveland Clinic and through um, multiple you know, subspecialty visits once they receive uh, that diagnosis. Thank you. I, and I, I like all the different aspects and different tools you guys are using to address this. I, I think it shows that you do take this as a very comprehensive and complex issue to really provide effective care for these patients. Now, as has been mentioned, health and long-term care systems face shortages in the geriatric workforce, specifically with regard to a workforce trained to care for persons with dementia. The Institute of Medicine back in 2008 reported an urgent need for healthcare workers with geriatric training. This shortage ranges from nurse practitioners, PAs, to primary care physicians. Leanne, how are geriatric workforce shortages impacting aging? I would say very much so. I mean, that that report came out, what, 15 years ago now, and we haven't seen mm-hmm. a lot of movement. Um, and it's it's something that concerns me. And it's primary care physicians, it's APPs, it's allied health professionals, it's direct care workers. Like, this is across the board, and it's a big problem. Um, I want to answer this question in two ways. First is, by with another statistic, um, by 2034, so like in just in just about 11 years from now, there will be more older people than children under the age 18 in our country for the first time in history. And I don't know what our medical training programs are doing with that statistic, but this has been alluded to before. You know, I, it seems like even if you're not a geriatrician, if you're a healthcare provider you're de facto a gerontological healthcare provider. Even pediatricians who are seeing grandparents raising grandchildren, there's there's an angle there for everyone in the healthcare workforce to get smarter about aging because the demographics speak for themselves. So having a workforce that understands the diversity inherent in aging is critical to being able to address outcomes brought on by social determinants of health that are different for different types of people. But I also think we need a geriatric workforce that reflects the communities that they're serving. I think only 5% of geriatricians are African-American, and the percentage of older people uh, that are African-American is more than double that. What are we doing about that? Um, Having a provider that comes from your community that looks like you makes a huge difference in even life expectancy. A new study came out showing that the presence of one doctor in a community positively impacted life expectancy for older Black people in that community. We need to be thinking about these things. Those are very good points. And, you know, as as you mentioned, the importance for many of many providers will be we have to, you know, tune up continually our continual medical education and learning more about these things because it will become more and more prevalent. Now, Nathan, how might projects like your cognitive assessment toolkit help address this issue? So I touched upon it a little bit in my last uh, response, but we, uh, the Cleveland Clinic, as well as the AAPA and the PA Foundation, uh, were awarded a grant from the Davos Alzheimer's Collaborative. Uh, and it really focuses, uh, and our aim of our, our project is to upskill the primary care providers on early detection in these uh, in 
primary care, uh, where patients are being seen most common. Uh, to Leanne's point, we know that uh, geriatrics and brain health and neurology really is overwhelmed uh, with patient volumes. And primary care is really the front line. Uh, we're the primary source of contact for a lot of these patients and discussing Alzheimer's diagnosis and other forms of dementia. But really focusing on uh, the rural and remote communities, uh, that's something that our grant is looking at because we know that there's a limited access in rural areas uh, for specialty services. So we're managing in primary care uh, these risk factors. Uh, we're making the diagnosis, uh, but we have to be upskilled to have uh, be comfortable in having these conversations. So our toolkit really aims to provide you know, interactive education for clinicians, uh, but it also provides significant resources for patients, families, and their caregivers. Uh, and more to come uh, as we work through our pilot uh, for our, our toolkit uh, that's happening, uh, is starting to happen now. So we, we have a lot of great work being done, and this will uh, be available in the future for any provider or clinician to access and pull these resources from. That is great to hear, and I look forward to seeing what comes of this uh, Davos grant and the work that is going to be done you know, collaboratively. I think it'll be uh, very impactful. Now, what services outside the healthcare industry might be helpful for, for these patients, and, and is there a role for healthcare providers in connecting patients to these resources? Yes, I think there's a huge role. Um, there, There is a, a wide constellation of services available in the community that have been available in the community for 100 years now. Um, is we, we in the in, in gerontology and aging call this the aging network. Um, and it starts with federal funding through the Older Americans Act, which trickles to each state. Each state has a state unit on aging, and they in turn funnel those funds regionally across the state into area agencies on aging. Those are sort of the hubs of publicly funded services available to anyone um, who is an older person. Um, so these are things like transportation services, meal services, home delivered or congregate meals, caregiver supports. These are the services that address the social determinants of health. And having connections between primary care and these services, this is, this is basically the fabric of the movement that CMS has been encouraging for a long time to reduce hospitalizations through offering, you know, uh, services that make a difference in people's everyday health and everyday lives. So I would encourage everyone to um, find the Area Agency on Aging in their community and take some time to get to know them. They're also called AAAs. Uh, you might hear that as well. But I'm really glad, Nathan, to hear about your Cognitive Assessment Toolkit. There are organizations outside of the formal aging network, like Us Against Alzheimer's. They're another nonprofit that is working really hard to empower people with tools and um, questions to, to use to talk with primary care providers. They, the Us Against Alzheimer's sponsors a Brain Health Academy, and they actually have a tool that you can use um, on the internet or dial by phone that will walk you through a series of questions about your brain health that generates a printout that you can then take to your doctor or your APP or whoever you're talking to and have a conversation about. So on the other side, providers need to have, you know, the skills to have those conversations and, and do assessments accordingly. So I'm, it's, it's great to hear about the work that you're doing up in Cleveland. 
That makes a lot of sense. It also makes me think, you know, how important it is for uh, healthcare providers to utilize our colleagues. And most of us, you know, have social work. We have case managers. We have people that can really help connect because time can be limited in those discussions. And they and these patients need follow-up that can be outside the office. And I think utilizing those tools that we have in place in our systems can really help with this situation. Now, as you know, we've clearly covered here, improving health equity for aging patients is a very complex topic. For any healthcare providers listening who want to learn more about these issues or learn new skills to help their patients, what resources do you guys recommend? I can start with that. So, James, you know, I, it would be remiss not to plug uh, our, the AAPA uh, PA, Foundation, PA Foundation and Cleveland Clinic uh, Cognitive Assessment Toolkit that we just talked about. It really is going to provide clinicians and uh, as well as nurses and MAs the ability to how, uh, understand how to appropriately, you know, perform screening exams and assessment exams, how to have the difficult conversations uh, with patients uh, r- r- around aging uh, and around uh, cognitive impairment. Uh, there's a ton of resources out there from different groups. Leanne is representing one of them here today. But ultimately, uh, as we talk about what resources, I go back to Leanne's response on the last question. You have to look uh, locally, local agencies, local support groups, uh, and really begin to build those relationships uh, in your community uh, because the patients that you're serving are going to need that support uh, and services as the population continues to age. And I'll, I'll add on a couple things to that. Something that I think everyone should read is a book by Louise Aronson, Dr. Louise Aronson, called Elderhood. So my first, my first recommendation is read Elderhood. It's a great portrayal of the intersections between aging and medicine written by a geriatrician. The second thing I would recommend is kind of different, um, but take a look at your friend circle. Take a look at who you spend time with and just pay attention to the age range represented in your friend circle. Think about if you have a friend who is 10, 20, 30 years older than you, or maybe 10, 20, 30 years younger than you. And if you don't, try to find one, because I think one of the important ways that we can break through our ageism and our ageist stereotypes, we have to go outside of our family. It's too personal when we talk about our family. We need friends that span the age spectrum. And the third thing that I would encourage everyone to do is to follow um, ASA, follow the American Society on Aging on your favorite social media channel. Our handle is at ASAging. And we're going to have an upcoming issue of our e-magazine, Generations Today, uh, featuring the healthcare workforce, um, including some folks, some PAs. Um, That'll be coming out this summer. And in October, uh, we're going to be having our second annual Ageism Awareness Day. So follow us and look for ways to learn and get involved and just continue making ageism and ageism awareness a part of your daily practice. Well, thank you for those suggestions. And I want to say thank you both for for coming on the podcast today. We truly appreciate your time and your expertise in the fields of geriatric care, Nathan, and aging research, Leanne. As we close out, would you mind providing us with, you know, a, a final thought, main takeaway? Sure, I can start. Uh, so really, uh, I want all the clinicians uh, listening to this podcast to know that early detection for cognitive impairment is essential for the future. 
And then as a clinician, we cannot be afraid to start the conversations and ask those difficult questions uh, so that we can serve uh, that population with respect and uh, allow them uh, all, all the access to care as possible. And I guess I will conclude by saying we are an aging society, and that is something that I think we should celebrate and not fear. Uh, it's something that presents opportunities. It doesn't present challenges. So find ways to think about that, lean into that in your own lives, in your families, and in your practice. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And to our audience, thank you very much for listening today. I'm James Millward, and this is the Vital Minds Podcast, interviewing experts Dr. Leanne Clark-Shirley and Nathan Hart, PhD. Thank you very much.